Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hello and welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism, an anti-capitalist movie podcast. I am Frank Capello. And I am Rivka Rivera. We're back after an unannounced break last week. Um, we talked a little bit about it on our premium episode, but we, we had to take a week off because, uh, sadly, we had, my family had to put our cat down, our cat Milo, um, so it just had to so it was just best for everyone's mental health and emotional well-being to just take last week's off. So I so I apologize to our listeners for the inconvenience, but if you're upset with me then I don't know, where's your heart? What's wrong with you? No one's upset. This is an anti-capitalist audience. They recognize that was a highly anti-capitalist act. Oh sure. That's true. <laughs> but it was. I'm not going to produce this week. Well, yeah, totally though, but I just think it's 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 never not wild to realize how quickly I am like oh, it, it I'll go to work like sick like you know, even though we went through even after the pandemic and we were there was kind of like talk of hopefully collectively changing those systems and maybe paid sick days and caring for each other that's slowly gone away and it's kind of gone back to the show must and will go on we gotta go back to the office we got all this office space that is just sitting around not doing anything so i was being silly but i actually do i think it was for me to it's always so wonderful to be able to witness someone take care of their needs like that and you were like yeah no i'm not we can't i'm like of course and i'm 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 so grateful and fortunate that I was I am in a position where I could take that time off because I know that there right. are a lot of people out there who just do not have the means to take the time for themselves when they need to. So I I, I understand it's a very privileged position and I am very grateful for it. Uh, but we are back and this is kind of our time of year. This is Oscar season. It's award season and um, the Oscar nominations came out, I think, uh, a couple weeks ago at this point, but we wanted to talk about them really fast because we haven't had the chance to yet. Uh, I think the big annoying story that everyone <laughs> was reading and talking about was the fact that Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie were not nominated for the Barbie movie for director and lead actress, respectively. And I don't think we have much more to add to the discourse, which has been going on for a couple of weeks at this point. But, you know, it was it was a very white feminist moment for the Internet. People chiming in to say how much of a how how much of an injustice this was that Greta and Margot were robbed of their Oscar nominations. And people rightly pointed out, you know, hey, a lot of you who are saying stuff about this haven't said one word about the the genocide that's been unfolding in Gaza over the last four months. So maybe this isn't the most important thing that we that we all need to talk about at this moment. Also, Celine Song and Greta Lee from the film Past Lives were both not nominated for director and actress for, in my estimation, a much, much better film and a much, much better performance than Barbie, Past Lives. If you haven't seen it, highly recommend it. But there was no matching uproar for the two of them. So it it, it was very emblematic of white feminism, white liberalism, just kind of caring about bullshit, surfacy identity politics rather than anything actually substantive. Yeah, I'm having, okay, I'm having a few thoughts. One, 
it's not that I, I to me exactly it was what you're saying of like where it was more about who fucking cares when there's a genocide happening and those are the women's issues I give a fuck about followed up with it's not that there's not a there there per se like yeah it's all I guess in the world of capitalism in the world of if you really look at awards shows for kind of what they are which is a marketing plan and sure. scheme and you say okay but in the capitalist scheme of things Barbie brought in so much money isn't it isn't only fair that this person be nominated as at least lead capitalist right like <laughs> I think that's kind of and then I think that's what is like frustrating because that was really like what people were articulating their anger about because rightly so other people were like well I'm confused about the feminist part when like it's a category of all women so yeah what is what are you and I really think it was like what you're trying to say because the argument I've heard is like for the most for a movie that made so much money and had such a huge push against it why isn't there recognition what you're trying to say is recognition for like the better capitalist like the better at bringing in all the money and because we know this shit's subjective anyways and just like you said past lives is a fucking brilliant movie and neither women from that film were nominated in their all-female categories well, except for director. Director is not an all-female right. ca category. Yeah. Right, right, right. But the, point, the point still stands. And with director, I understand being pissed, in again, in the sense of, like, capital. Because <laughs> like, yeah. then I'm like, okay, if we're looking subjectively, then is there some misogyny at play here? Potentially, but I'm just so... That's not, like, that's not the place I want to put my energy. It's an old story, and it, again, it has so much more to do with capital and things that have nothing to do with actual like feminism i think a lot of women at least this is my perspective after seeing barbie you know this summer were like wow this is feminism the movie this is the commercial feminism movie this like this says everything that we've been wanting to say about every problem that women face and one, it's not because, it, like, again, it comes from a very, a very, like, elite white feminist perspective, not a ton of intersectionality there. So I think, like, when people claim to this movie as, like, yes, this is, like, our banner for everything that feminists believe in. And then to see, you know, Ryan Gosling get the only nomination out of the movie, it's like people being like, oh, well, you guys didn't get the message of the movie then. So, you know, once again, us feminists have to take it on the chin but like we're saying, it's a very narrow view of feminism and of creativity and of film and who deserves to get recognized for what. Yeah, and I want, I, 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 there's an imperfect thought coming up. But what I'm feeling is like hearing this, I'm like, yeah, because you said women who think this. And I think, I think when we use the term white feminism and when we use any of these sort of like terms that have come to mean like a way of thinking, a perspective. I don't think that necessarily meets that means that everyone behind that perspective is liter is actually a white female. Sure. Female sure. identifying person. I think a lot of the people pushing that narrative are actually white men <laughs> or the people who sure. benefit again, whose capital and whose profit benefits the most from pushing forward that narrative. Because I think it's I think what's so um useful about particularly white feminism is it's such a like it's such a specific identity base it mm -hmm. makes it really easy to like put a very specific hatred on a very specific on like a white woman and i don't think it actually it's interesting because i'm um i have just started reading capital 
our premium <laughs> our premium listeners know about this uh, but i just started being couple but one thing that like and i'll be probably sharing things along the way as i unpack this incredibly difficult book Marx does specify, like, I use these terms, bourgeoisie, capitalist, like, I'm not talking about personalities or individual people, it's to use, like, a, it's like an idea, it's like a, a populist within this system. Yeah, it's like a broad subset. Yeah. yeah, because I see more and more, like, it's really useful to the bigger system to have a a white woman that's so easy to hate. And maybe it's because I'm, I'm working on a play currently about Amber Heard, and I'm just really, in, I'm thinking a oh, lot about that archetype. Okay. But like, and you know, the Blanche Dubois, just like there's some that, but yes, I just wanted to say that, that like, I would guess that a lot of people pissed off too, weren't just white women, but like a lot of white men or people of many different identities who yes. uphold that uh, ideology. I'm I'm glad you corrected me on that. I, I shouldn't have just said women, just people. But it's an easy, yeah, I didn't think you meant, but you know, it's easy to. No, but I think, I think clarifying those points is, is very important. This isn't just. Uh, because of white women this is because of white feminism which is it's a... useful for capitalism like i think it's i think it's white feminism specifically and upholding it is useful to upholding racial capitalism to upholding just upholding systems as they are yes upholding the systems that they are and only addressing issues based on identity rather than any sort of using any sort of utility of like class analysis and understanding where like right. the class where the class divides come and how that must be part of your critique otherwise you end up being Hillary Clinton who just says you know Greta Margo you are Knuff whatever you know right. like like Hillary Clinton being the epitome of this kind of really just hollow identity politics and you know this is part of like a larger discussion of like identity po politics can be useful to a certain point but again once if you're not integrating a full class analysis or class prescription for your policies or your perspectives then really you're mm -hmm. then really just gets reduced to like well you know if just like men were nicer or white people were less racist everything would be fixed and it's just it's just so much more complicated than that it's so much more complicated than that let me ask you this one question. Is there, because, you know, a few years ago we saw, like, the whole Oscars so white thing. I think that's actually trended several years. It, will there ever be, can there ever be, like, a nominee list with a, a makeup that is enough to satisfy everyone? Like, what are we hoping to, no. like... No, I mean, like, no. What are we hoping a... to achieve with the Academy Awards? Or at least in your in your point of view, like, what should we be trying to achieve with the Academy Awards? I can't say I'm, like, here full wholeheartedly and not still grieving this, but I think it's becoming clearer and clearer that the reality, which actually was like spoken to most clearly at Oscars, so white. It's, it's a great metaphor is not the right word. Microcosm might be the right word. You'll know what I mean in a second. It's a great, let's go with microcosm. Microcosm for like the capitalist system as is, right? You're not like, there is no changing it. They, there's no amount of like changing the course of, nominees inside of it because the its whole purpose is capital like its whole purpose is marketing yeah. and profiting like that's the point of the award system it's literal competition for the sake of saying this is the best and can make the most money and drive people to see the films within that like it's intentional within that like i, I i'm gonna even go as far as to say like i'm sure someone was like yeah you know it's gonna be better for us like we need to create some pr like we need something to make this like yeah create some drama Create some drama. Let's not nominate Barbie. That'll really make a piss them off, and that'll get people talking about it. And 
you know, because it really is like the bad press is good. Like it does create the stir. I wish I, I, I'm every year I feel like more and more distanced and more and more like okay with the reality that like that has nothing to do with my art making. And it's not like I'm not human and prestige isn't still, you know, we're still all in the system trying to grapple with it. And there's obviously great things amidst all of that that comes with it for visibility and for what it can do for individual artists career. But in terms of a systemic change, it has nothing to do with individuals. And that's really hard when you are the individuals inside of it. It's really hard to let go of the idea that like, but it could be me. And I could change it for everyone. <laughs> like, I still buy yeah. that bullshit. I'm human. Created in this system. Ultimately, the people sitting in the auditorium at the Oscars, all those people who work at the studios and the networks and the PR firms and the agencies, all of the people who make a fat living off of the work of artists like those people are still sitting there and at least for me until those people aren't sitting there and it's a room full of people who actually own and create the art together then I'll, I'll watch it but I'm like I'm not signing off on this as like a ceremony I'm so annoying I literally have like been I'm like halfway through chapter one and look at me <laughs> y'all you just remove the profit mode like it's the capital because it's like you could play a fun game and be like, OK, all that aside, like you're the capitalist bound to make the most money. What would you do at the Oscars? Do you what would your nominee list be like? That's that's the that is what runs. Like, so it's like you could we could talk, but they don't. But that's not what's running the game. No, this is not about quality or satisfaction or when those things align. I'm sure it's nice. And I'm sure if someone gets in and they're what do they call them? Like a benevolent capitalist that's nice and you can but like you're still just towing the line finding a way to satisfy profit and the people and you're ultimately gonna have to satisfy profit harvey weinstein along with being a you know a fucking sexual predator and criminal um was known as one of the best oscar campaigners of all time and a number of times got his movies to win when people were like yo that movie was not the best movie of the year but like you're saying it's just the people who own the means, who own the capital, who pull the strings, that actually move how these things work. And it's intentional. Like, that's the other piece. It's like, it's not like, oops. Yeah. Oops. All right, well, we will continue talking about the Oscars and other awards and all of the all the fun movie stuff that's coming up over the next few months. But we should get to our conversation today with our third time returning guest, Harvey Kay. But before we do, we just want to let you all know that this podcast is produced by the two of us. We perform all of the necessary labor to make this show happen. And as we're trying to practice our anti-capitalist values, we will not be selling ads on this show. We rely completely on community support to keep the show going. So if you're able to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get access to our entire back catalog of premium episodes, and you'll be directly supporting this show. You can also leave us a one-time contribution in our tip jar, and you can find all of those links in the episode description in your podcast player or by going to mvcpod.com. You can also help us out for free by leaving a rating and review for this show on your podcast player. It only takes a few seconds, and it is very helpful in boosting the algorithm and getting this show in front of more people, so we really appreciate it. We're going to take a break, but we will be right back with Harvey K talking about Cradle Will Rock. Today we are once again joined by, I think, our favorite guest on this podcast, <laughs> Harvey Kay. Harvey is Professor Emeritus of Democracy and Justice at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay and a member of the AFT, the American Federation of Teachers. 
He's an award-winning author and editor of 18 books, including The British Marxist Historians, Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again, and many others. Harvey has worked with figures ranging from Norman Lear to progressive politicians Nina Turner and currently Marianne Williamson's 2024 presidential campaign. Harvey K., welcome back to the podcast. Well, obviously, I'm honored that you think that... I'm your favorite guest because you are my favorite people these days, I can tell you. <laughs> Ooh, these days. <laughs> well, no, in the sense that in the course of my life, I've had a lot of favorite people. Yes, it... yes. Okay. So we can be replaced is what you're saying. <laughs> we, can easi- we can easily be replaced. Okay. We got to keep it sharp. All right. Edit note. that out. Let me start over. <laughs> no, that's oh, that's, that's staying. That's staying. <laughs> no, no, seriously. I, look, I adore you guys. And um, anyhow, but it's great. It's fabulous to be doing this. And. And I'm really glad that we talked and talked and talked about what to do next and that this was the film that came up. So the film you chose is The Cradle Will Rock, which just I was so excited to rewatch as a theater person. And you could say theater nerd. Perfect intersection of our interests as former theater kids and a labor historian exactly so it really is the perfect and i think we should jump in because i have a feeling this is going to be a meaty convo harvey you've shared with us you've certainly been doing your research so i'm excited to hear all the things you're going to bring to the table this film was written and directed by tim robbins following his film which did really really well was it did he do dead man walking who did dead man walking yeah Following Dead Man Walking, which was a big hit. So this was the film on the heels of that. The cast, I couldn't even get everyone in. It's a true ensemble picture. So I wrote down as many of the names as I could. But there's so many people in this movie. It's pretty amazing. Hank Azaria, Emily Watson, John Turturro, Vanessa Redgrave, Susan Sarandon, Ruben Blades, Bill Murray, Cherry Jones, Joan and John Cusack, Paul Giamatti, Jack Black, and so many more. It's really that it's really exciting if you if that's just going to draw you alone how many people are in this film. Stacked cast. The budget for this movie was get ready for this. And this film came out in 1999. 36 million dollars. I had to double check that I, that was correct in, I checked multiple sources. It in fact was 36 million dollars. It looks incredible for 36 million dollars. But I guess yeah. that was no. I mean that that's like not a ton of money for. He, he obviously a lot of people must have done him favors. That, that yeah. cast alone, there must have been a lot of favors there. Yep, yeah, time. But it's it's not a lot of money. But it but given how much it brought in, I don't. I think it it probably wasn't a win for the capitalists of this film making endeavor because it only brought in two point nine million worldwide. Whoa. That's rough. Thirty six million only brought in two point nine. Yeah. yeah, big big flop. Ooh. And I believe this is the last movie that Tim Robbins directed. I think he did Bob Roberts a couple years later. Yeah, he did. Was it later? Was it after this? Yeah. Okay. Oh, no, no. Bob Roberts was 92. No, I think it was before. I'm pretty sure this was the last one. Okay. Wait Um, a minute. You don't realize that just like Newsies, this has now become a cult film in high schools, and they're going to be... I'm kidding. I'm joking. Oh. (laughs) I was like, really? I missed that. But just like Newsies, it was distributed by Disney, which is really interesting which we'll get into the ironies of that. Um, Cradle Will Rock tells the, quote, mostly true story of the production of the musical The Cradle Will Rock, written by Mark 
Glitzstein in 1937. Set during the Great Depression, the film focuses on the challenges faced by artists involved in the Federal Theater Project, a New Deal program to fund the arts. The film intertwines various stories related to the Federal Theater Project and New Deal program to fund the arts and other live artistic performances during the Great Depression. The central plot, there's a lot that this film covers, so we'll get into it more with you, Harvey, but the central plot revolves around the obstacles faced in staging the Cradle Will Rock, a pro-union, anti-capitalist musical, and the collective efforts of the artist to ensure its performance despite significant opposition from the government. The story culminates in a defiant act of artistic expression, symbolizing resistance against censorship and political control over the arts. And of course, there are many, there's like about A, B, C, D, E, F, G plot lines in this epic. Yeah, massive story. Some quick historical context for when this film was released. Uh, It was released on December 10th, 1999, uh, opening at the same time as the Tom Hanks film, The Green Mile. We are on the precipice of the Y2K bug. And if you don't remember this, basically the world was bracing itself for the entire uh, global telecommunication systems to collapse (laughs) when the clock struck midnight at 2000. Um, On January 7th of this year, the impeachment trial of Bill Clinton begins in the U.S. Senate. And on February 12th, he is acquitted of perjury and obstruction of justice. On television, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, ER, and Friends are the top shows on TV. Also, Law & Order Special Victims Union and The West Wing premiered this year. At the grocery store, Lunchables, Pizza Bagels, and Slim Fast are popular foods. (laughs) Eggs are 98 cents a dozen. You could buy a DVD like Titanic for $17.99 a piece, and a movie ticket cost $5.06. Also, this year, 1999, Jeff Bezos is chosen as Time Magazine's Person of the Year. Wow, wow, wow. And we didn't know how much he was really going to deserve it all of these years. (laughs) (laughs) So, Harvey, I mean, we've already kind of laid out the plot. It might be a little obvious, but why did you want to talk about Cradle of Rock today? Okay, well, the the most... The most obvious one is because of movies versus capitalism is very title. Okay, sure. This is th- this is a, a film and a pl- and about a play and the making of a play, which raises so many good questions about capitalism, about theater, about the arts, about the role of people in theater and the arts. I mean, I, I could go on and on and on. But and then as well because of my own particular interest, it. It's set in 1936-37, in the midst of the Great Depression, the era of the New Deal. When the film first came out, I hadn't yet moved into the book, The Fight for the Four Freedoms, FDR and the Greatest Generation. But I was already it was already in my mind because of other things I was doing. So it's just so at the time I immediately embraced the film, even before I saw it. I will tell everyone that. And I showed beforehand that I actually still have the New York Times articles about the release of the film and even the full page ad. Maybe that's what costs so much money for right, in the New York Times. <laughs> I also want to say, which is immodest of me, that I have met three of the folks involved in the film, one of whom I'm, I can say I'm, a friend, I'm friendly with, John Cusack. But also, serendipitously, in many ways, I didn't go seeking it out, nor did he come seeking out me, but Tim Robbins and I were on a panel together. And uh, Susan Sarandon, who has been close to Marianne Williamson, she and I met at an event last year. So when I put, when I look back over the years and I think about th- these figures in there, it's kind of as a sort of, sort of serendipity element there. There's so many reasons that that I, that I chose it. But I, I, and then it took a while though to choose it. That's a funny thing. It's always been there, but I, but it, I didn't mention it to you. I don't think at the very beginning of our conversations, Frank, a year ago. 
I mean, it just sort of came up along the way. Yeah, we started chatting about it at some point. No, I think we just started chatting about it because... Rivka and I had actually watched this for the first time in college. Our our one actual uh, sort of academic class that we had to take in theater school was like a a, a theater history class. Um, oh, good. And our our professor, a great guy, Jay Ball, um, showed us this film, and we were and he was like, "This is an extremely important film in understanding the history of theater and labor." And we were like, "We're 19 years old. We're hungover. This movie is so boring." Well, in fact, you know what? And I think I I texted you the other day and I said I actually had a certain sympathy for the two of you even now because there is it it is so fast paced that mm-hmm. if yeah. you don't watch I I watched it 3 times in the past week. I watched it twice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's so right. full of stuff. Right? It's actually as if you're on a stage with them and they're going through this quickly produced Well, it's play. really interesting because I think that's one of the things I love about it and one of the things I think didn't help the film. Like if right. if they had if miniseries were as big as they are now, this would be such an incredible miniseries. Oh, because there yeah. is so much right. packed in here. Oh I mean the the main plot, which kind of slightly fails to be the main plot because there's so much <laughs> happening, which I again right. I didn't mind. I just did have to watch more than once, which is fine by me. But I do think it doesn't allow you to fully the actors to fully get into like there's just so much more I want to know about these characters and I think a better medium would be a mini series because we have the plot A being about the actual making of this musical The Cradle Will Rock which is such an unbelievable storyline and mm-hmm. I had to make sure it was true I mean to me that was the heartbeat right. of it and it doesn't get as much it almost because there's so many other I think Robbins is trying to contextualize it in the greater context of the Great Depression and make sure that we understand how much is going on at the same time. We don't get as much of the musical as I wanted, you know, for everyone listening, the the way that the Cradle Will Rock is the musical being written by Mark Blitzstein. It was written in 1937 and it was one of the last projects it closed. It was one of the last projects developed by the federal theater project which we'll talk about in more context right about what that is the film culminates with a real story in which it is shut down by the government on what's supposed to be opening night and as a result the producer and the director orson wells find another theater like they're they're just rapidly scavenging to find another theater they find a piano and then in the midst of this Equity says the actors are not allowed to perform. So even though they found this theater, Equity ends up shutting it down. And so the actual audience who'd been circling, like waiting for opening night, and the actors walk 20 blocks uptown to a new theater where the playwright sits at a piano and begins to play without actors, just doing it almost as a one-man show. And throughout the evening, actors start playing their parts breaking from i guess in some ways you could say crossing the picket line which i think is interesting we should get into what Mm -hmm. really happened there and the movie doesn't go deeply into it but you're aware that they're making a decision to stand with this piece of art that was trying to be censored by the government and so it's a great act of solidarity even though they are crossing the picket line and to me that was like the most moving moment that's an interesting question though and i there are so many things i'd like to talk to you about and if you ever wish yeah there's something else too but on those terms that's I kept wondering, especially in the light of the, the actor's strike this past mm-hmm. year, I kept thinking, were they, did they, the unions told them they couldn't perform in this. 
and because they were using a particular there's a particular feature of the arrangement that so it, so it was basically to keep them from actually crossing the picket line by performing on the stage which they didn't do we should explain to everyone when they perform which we'll get to they don't do it on the stage and so i'm not so i didn't i didn't find the moral quandary quite as challenging because interesting I, because because by not going onto the stage they weren't crossing the pig line i don't know i can't Is i wish i true? could tell you more about the exact no i i i'm telling you that's what they didn't go on the stage oh interesting that's the key thing there's actually an archive somewhere, but I can't tell you. I'm going to go look in it for how the things happened. But it is the but the, it is the case that they made that decision. And for what it's worth, I'm. I think I told you to every time, all three times I rewatched it, I was getting teary eyed in that last explosive performance. You know. Mm-hmm. No, I think there's nuance there, right? But but maybe because yeah. there was so much packed in, there wasn't really the ability to fully explore it. But I felt like because unions are I felt like there was something there about potentially potentially the corruption of the higher I mean, they just didn't make a good call, but ultimately like the solidarity of the artist to stand by this piece of work. But I, I could tell you that that's the kind of question which is, you know, requires a little bit of research, which none of us will have the time to do after this moment. But there's another, there's similar questions that arise that really do, and I, we won't have time to get fully into it, and I wish, I want to get back to the film, but the question of government theater, national theater, okay? And the reason I say that is at the very same time that this production was being put together and then performed in its own fashion, another play, musical play, starts in New York City at the very same time that Blitzstein was also involved in. And it was called Pins and Needles. And it was the unions, the, the International Ladies Garment Workers Union and maybe one of the other garment unions, they created it from their own membership and staged it. And it became so big a hit that it actually moved, I think, to Broadway for two years. Oh, wow. And But they couldn't be shut. I mean, and that was a labor play but it but the government wasn't paying so that republican well the reactionary southern democrats actually are the ones who were shutting them down couldn't do anything about it because the unions were doing it so it raises the whole question about the imperative of civil society okay and it raises the question of to what extent government can be a can seed events but maybe it's safest if it isn't the sponsor of the event Mm -hmm. it's just thought Mm -hmm. that's which is something we could talk about Maybe even on a bonus episode sometime, one of those kind yeah. of things. It's to me, it's a real political question for people on the left. Well, that's the, that's the central theme of this movie, right? Is you know what who who has what say over how art and in this case specifically theater is produced. And I feel like that question is is raised and answered by different people, where it's like, well, the the theater makers should be the those the storytellers. Those those are the people who should actually be. Uh, have the most controllership over the the means of producing theater. Um, in this yes. specific in this specific case, it is the government footing the bill for the federal theater project. Although I read that this was a profitable new uh, New Deal program. Like not only not only was the government you know subsidizing and funding 
this arts program, but the Federal Theater Project specifically actually turned profitable during its run at some point. So it was that, that wouldn't you know, surprise me. And keep in mind that ten was it thirty was it thirty five million? What's the number? There was a number indicated by Hallie Flanagan, who was the director of the when she was appearing before uh, the House on American Activities Committee. There was a number she cited, or if she didn't cite it, I just read it somewhere. I mean, millions and millions of people benefited and enjoyed. Mm-hmm. The federal mm-hmm. theater project. It's, this story is told in New York, but there were federal theater projects in every significant city in the in the United States, and in smaller locales, there were touring theater companies mm-hmm. of the federal theater project. I mean, it was massive. Uh, I yeah. actually, again, if we weren't under a time limit, I, I have this incredible list of numbers that that would blow people's minds. So the so the federal theater project, and and just to leave the government side for a moment. She makes an interesting pitch at the end where she's, they say, well, you know, it's coming to an end. She says, well, we've launched a ship. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and it is the case. Theater, musical theater changed in America after Cradle of Rock because Blitzstein himself is a major actor in all this. He's close to Copeland. He's close to Bernstein. And by the way, Leonard Bernstein produced and played the piano in Cradle of Rock while he was a student up at Harvard, I believe. Something oh, like wow. that. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, it, it really, the reverberations from this play were really significant. Really, really mm-hmm. significant. And and the reverberations for all of this, all of this affordable theater like that was produced, not only with the intention of employing people, but of keeping people entertained. And not in like a, not in like a distraction way, but like in, in creating creating culture for the yeah. masses that was that was affordable that was accessible mm-hmm. um at one point during the film and i'm assuming this is a real stat they say uh hallie flanagan who's played so wonderfully by cherry jones yes. um, who who runs the federal theater project she gets called to congress to you know testify before what was what the dyes committee before it became the house on american activities yeah. committee yeah um right and they they ask her. They say so. Twenty five million people have seen federal theater project works, and so that and at the, that time, that's twenty five percent of the country, which is astounding, astounding, astounding. to think that yeah. a government run arts program right. could have that much reach at that time. Yeah, and in underneath the umbrella of the theater, federal theater project, they had the circus project, the vaudeville project, the mm-hmm. dance project, the classics project. They had the black theater company up in Harlem that Orson Welles himself was one of the directors of. They had a Yiddish theater, an Italian theater in the New York area. I mean, it was just... Wow. It was an incredible kind of institution, which is why those racist, white supremacist, Southern Democratic reactionaries in service to capitalism were so eager to shut it down Mm -hmm. because it showed the potential of a truly democratic, small d, democratic theater across America and the questions it raised. And I left out a key thing. I don't know if you've heard of the living newspaper. This was Hallie Flanagan idea mm-hmm. where they created these these small three. I think they were three person teams that would produce plays regularly based on current affairs and historical events. And this was really challenging stuff. It was and it was undeniably political. But as somebody said, well, look, the capitalists can spend all as much money as they want on propaganda. Why shouldn't the citizenry get to, <laughs> to counter it? I'm just still astounded by how many people it touched and how clearly there was a real 
danger for the capitalist class. And it's, I think, why we feel so passionate about the power of art and the power of live theater and why it is been so tightly maintained by a capitalist class since then. Because, (laughs) I mean, if you're in New York now, theater prices, even in a place like the public theater, you know, they do their free theater in Central Park, but you can't get it cheap ticket it's not a public it's not really for the public it can't maintain that anymore prices for theater like you're lucky if you're getting 60 dollars a ticket yeah, right, but it's in right. it's it's really incredible and it and it creates this quandary which i think also is written into this again i think if there wasn't so much some of these themes would sing a little bit more but there's mark blitzstein gets really like held up on this concept of well, he's starting the musical writing about he wants to write about a prostitute who in the Great Depression has to sell her body to eat. And then it becomes with the help of Bertolt Brecht and the ghost of his wife who's passed, who, by the way, Bertolt Brecht was still alive during the same time. as. So I don't know how it would have been the ghost. They actually had a conversation. There there was a conversation. That's historically the case. So fascinating. Well, I loved the the way, even if even if it was just a conceit, and there were a few conceit, there were a few liberations that Robbins took to make. Oh stuff. yeah, can I just point out that he took a lot of stuff in the '30s, like the Rockefeller mural, the mural that Diego Rivera was commissioned by Nelson Rockefeller to produce in the NBC building, which was de- definitely a true story, but it took place a couple of years before the actual film. Yeah, um, I think that was in also '34. Yeah, and he and by the way, and he creates a lot of these are historical figures. William Randolph Hearst was really a figure. Uh, Nelson Rockefeller, who played by John Cusack, really a figure. Gray Mathers, however, the steel company owner, is a composite of steel company mm. owners. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, the Dyes Committee hearing that's shown in the film, I think, actually happened after. Yeah, in '38. So, look, I'm a historian, and this is this is not meant to be a history. It's meant to be a historically informed play and i i just think it's it was marvelous yeah i thought that was great and i and similarly i thought it worked to have the ghost of brecht because the play ends up becoming super brechtian by accident because all of the actors because they're not allowed to perform you know orson welles sort of directs it with this set that's coming down and it's really like too much and it's got all these hyper realist things happening on stage and it be because of the way that it happens, it and he ends up having to just bare bones it down, and the and the actors are coming out of the audience singing because that's how it really happened in real life. They had to they had to make that decision in the moment if they were going to sing along or not, and that in effect ended up becoming very Brechtian. I don't know how to pronounce the W in his name, but Kurt Weil or Kurt Weil. That, I think Kurt he's Weil, another yeah. major influence, and I love that. I loved how I thought Robbins got. I mean. Given how much she's trying to get in, I thought he got that storyline in there really beautifully. But I get—I think the original point I was making was the theme of everyone being that he starts writing this play about just this prostitute, and the and Brecht sort of edges him on to think about like who else is a whore, and you know who are the other whores, and he sort of like is seeing what's happening around him with the labor strikes and the role of artists in the theater, and so he also has this conversation with Orson Welles where he's like, "But I really want to know that you understand that like you're." What is what happens when the artist is whores themselves out, and who are, who who are you paying, and who are you working for? And I think that's an interesting question. And he turns it into a, it's actually a play about the prostitution that capitalism compels. 
So, for example, exactly. I mean, mm-hmm. let's take him up. I mean, Diego Rivera commissioned by Nelson Rockefeller to produce this mural. Now, most of us will immediately say, oh, Diego Rivera and the mural is great. And by the way, it's later reproduced in the Palace of Bellas Artes in Mexico City, even though it's destroyed in New York. There was a photograph that they used to reproduce it in Mexico City. But the thing is that we should explain who this woman is after I mention her name, Margarita Sarfati, who was famous for being Mussolini's girlfriend. She was a Jewish fascist. But keep in mind, Italian fascism was not specifically anti-Semitic. It becomes anti-Semitic because Hitler basically tells Mussolini, we're going to you're going to do what I, you know, the things that, that are demanded of you by the Reich. Anyhow, so she comes out of the build, out of the NBC building, and there's Diego Rivera sort of, you know, like angry as, as hell, complaining about the fact, how dare Rockefeller come after my art, blah, blah, blah. He accuses her, Sarfati, right, of being a... Sarfati, yeah. A, a prostitute. Did he use the word prostitute or so, in that moment? I think there's like, when a, he calls her a Jewish fascist. Jewish fascist. And, and she says back to him... She says, basically, well, you're the toy or the puppet or the whore of Rockefeller for accepting the money. Yeah. And, and you're a wealthy communist, too. I think that that's was, it. A, wealth, a wealthy you're communist. You're a wealthy communist. Right. But there's a lot of conversation exactly between them of like, well, OK. Yeah, but for those of you, for those listeners who, who are appreciative of Frida Kahlo, she's in it as well. Very minimally. Minimally. Yeah, no, yeah. minimally. Right. More so played for jokes like, oh, there's Frida Kahlo sitting over there. Over there in the corner. Well, actually, I was thinking mostly in terms of when they come in to destroy the mural. And Diego's up there trying, and he shouts to Frida, oh, yeah. tell the mm. students, Students Art League, okay? And she's the one mm. who rallies them and brings them to protest at Rockefeller Center. It was one of my, the, the Diego Rivera mural was one of my favorite storylines. Because I think it, it, it crystallized so clearly this idea of like, you know, it costs money to create art at, mm. at either the expense of, you know, a patron or, you know, someone commissioning the art or at the expense of the artist who has to put in either their own time and money to create something. And it raises the question of, you know, who gets creative control in a situation like this, especially this one where Diego Rivera was under the impression that he would have full artistic liberty. I think had even uh, uh, had let the Rockefellers know that there was going to be, you know, I'm going to include your capitalists, but I'm also going to include some people on the other side. This is, we're showing the totality of humanity Mm -hmm. here. And the, Mm -hmm. the sticking point is that he paints Vladimir Lenin into prominently into the, into the mural and that, and they're like, well, we're not putting this up in our lobby. This is coming down and they end up destroying it. You did notice, of course, when they're just, when they're destroying the mural that Marx is in there. I, yeah, Did I noticed, yeah, it? Marx is also yeah. in there as well. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I th- it's so interesting because this question is raised, you know, through, by, by Nelson Rockefeller and then also by the federal government and then also by the other rich art patron characters that we're introduced to, which is, you know, if we're fronting the bill, you can only ac- include the, the messaging, the ideology, the themes, the people that we are comfortable with, the ones that we are comfortable with. And... Just so happens that most of the people who get get that sort of control are aligned with capital already. So it's it's just like it's showing the way that these pro-business, anti-communist ideas are proliferated, not only from the government but also like from private wealthy private citizens. Oh and yeah, just like, right. and it's it's just like it's so I, I thought it's so strong and like if you've never engaged with that, if you've never like really engage with some sort of like critical theory, critical thinking of the way that like historiography is, it gets played out and like, and who tells the stories and who has control. Mm. It really makes you think for the first time, like, oh, 
That's right. It just takes a few people, either with money or with power, to say like, hey, 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 don't put that in there and instead put this in there. And then that's and then that becomes the narrative that ends up reaching, you know, millions and millions of people. It's it's pretty astounding. Harvey is holding up books. a book. Oh, this is one of your books. Why, why do ruling why do ruling classes fear history? Ooh. Okay. I, I, I'll get you guys. I'll I'll try to find a copy for each of you. <laughs> so okay. So, so but, we we can buy it. We we want you to get those royalties. Can I give you an example of the kinds of things I'm gonna give you an ex I am gonna give you an example. I'm not gonna ask you permission. I'm gonna give you an example of how there's a historical reference that could get by people. FDR in the 1930s called the capitalists economic royalists to compare their obstruction of American democracy to the royalists of the, at the time of the American Revolution. Now, remember, after when Rockefeller and Gray Mathers, the steel mogul, and William Randolph Hearst, who, by the way, was originally a populist and a progressive, but became a fascist in the 30s. Mm. Strange. When they are at the party, remember at the end, they're sitting at a, at a, around a table at a party mm -hmm. and they're dressed in, as royalists. They're dressed as 18th century royalists. That's Robin sticking in that reference of FDR to economic royalists. Mm. Now, also notice they're having a conversation. And they're, and they're talking about, what are they going to do about art, the people in the arts? What are we going to do about art? And Rockefeller, and amongst them, they decide abstraction. They will push abstraction, which, by the way, is exactly what happened after the war. You probably know that, okay? Oh, I didn't know that. At, oh, that yeah. That makes sense, though. Rothko and company, so to speak, mm. okay? Oh, uh. and also, what's his name? Who's the, who's the guy with the dripping? Quick. Pollock. Pollock, who was yes. in the 30s, I believe, in the WPA. He was <laughs> in the right. WPA. Later, he get, his work is all abstraction by drippings. So th that's Robbins and these guys commenting on what happened to the mm. arts, number one. Mm. No. So he, he married had a girlfriend who was this art. She was like an, I don't know, an art advisor, art collector. And she was, they were introduced by Kissinger, by the way. It was Kissinger introduced. Very cool. The point is that he dies. Everyone... He apparently was out one night. He died. What's the word in, they use in course In flagrante? There's some word they use in courtrooms. He dies basically screwing somebody that night. Rigor mortis? No, he dies uh -huh. having sex with someone. Is my understanding? Oh, wow. I didn't know that had a scientific term. Sorry, you're, you're all you're all young. I shouldn't I shouldn't corrupt your minds like this. <laughs> There's <laughs> but, a technical term. I want to learn it. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> I think it's in flagrante. Check out the term en flagrante. It will forever okay. be en flagrante to me, Harvey. Well, and, and if the Rockefeller family wants to sue me for this, they won't get very much. <laughs> the, 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 the point I'm making is they build into this film so many things that if you're not paying attention, really paying attention, you, you miss all these great references. I, I can't help but imagine Tim Robbins was laughing when he had Cusack, or maybe Cusack himself just threw the word nudes in when they talk about art. You know, because he's playing, you know, he's playing Rockefeller. So it's just great. You're right, Harvey. It's in flagrante delicto, which Ooh. is defined as in the very act of wrongdoing, especially in an act oh, of yeah. sexual well, misconduct. It it's often used in the courtroom, I think, or something like that oh, to I refer see. to the specific. Matter. The one line from that scene, which I thought like reinforces what we're talking about is I think it's William Randolph Hearst says, we create the next generation of art because we pay for it. And which is, I think, yeah. another a very another stark, very real reminder. And Rivka, it's kind of what you're talking about with like modern Broadway theater, you know, like the stuff that gets produced, 
Mm. Is the stuff that is the safest? Is the stuff that usually does not challenge the status quo? It is the stuff that has the most uh, potential commercial viability. Um, and we see that translated into the way that, you know, like, there, I, I think there's probably more jukebox musicals on Broadway right now than there are original musicals because it's, you know, it's like, oh, well, maybe no one will see this original show, but they'll come buy a show based on the Britney Spears music. And this, and this is true for Holly. It's true for Hollywood, too. It's true for all we're, all of the bigger facilities of production that create art in, in like large scale ways. So like Broadway, Hollywood, it's it's like so much of what we are given is just like, what are the people with the money willing to pay for and what are they willing to get behind? The Margarita Sarfati character, the Jewish fascist, who mm-hmm. who is not an invention. She's was a real person. She's in this story. So she's over the United States selling Italian artworks, classical, mm-hmm. classical artworks to these kinds of men, the steel capitalist and, and Hearst. And I will tell you that William Randolph Hearst probably was taking money, besides the money he might have been paying for artwork, he was probably taking money because he was running columns by Il Duce. He was running columns by Mussolini in his newspaper, mm-hmm. authored, you know, basically it was Sarfati who was the one who was writing him and they were putting Mussolini's name on it. She, she had bro- they had broken off their relation- sexual relationship, the fascist woman and, and uh, Mussolini, but they remained friendly, and she, she worked for him for the rest of those, of those years. Yeah, I thought her character as well, and the, the character that Vanessa Redgrave plays so wonderfully, the mm-hmm. Mather Steele, the wife, Character, yeah, that's a fictional it, character. Yeah, but she was great. And that's great. fictional, but I think they play, there's something, she played, they almost to me played very various like personality versions of the same idea, which again is how people can be obsessed with art that they just so politically don't agree with or just is so, it's a weird thing, right? And and But the but the, count, the, the steel owner, the steel capitalist, wife played by Vanessa Redgrave the countess countess lagrange she was on the left politically she was on the left she was rich she was more yeah, sympathetic to sympathetic hell she was the one who went out and got she went out and got the piano when they needed it i mean keep in mind for her she did it as if it was a lark so much of it that's she what i'm saying I, I think that that she played the role of the capitalist class playing cosplay but if it really came down to i mean she didn't do anything of of she was like having fun playing poor, but ultimately she's not leaving her husband. Ultimately, she knew of his dealings with Mussolini, but it was very and you and you could see the the gender politics between them as well. But like ultimately, she didn't seem to really make that connection between this play that she loved and loved seeing the artists and <laughs> oh, it's so fun. But like it was like a fan fictiony kind of experience. Which yeah, I, I, think I they, agree with you. I, I agree. Do you know with what I mean? You, and but... I think that's important because there's so many. There's so many, um, particularly now, cap of the capitalist class that you that want the cultural points that produce the plays that do these things, but they're not going to make a play. They're not going to. They might produce a play with deep politics, like the Cradle Will Rock, but they're going to charge two hundred fifty dollars a ticket. It no one who needs to hear that message is going to hear it. And there's something interesting about doing because I've seen like some plays are made with really important politics and really good work. But I think what I got from this film is like if the people who need to see them politic, like the, if the classes that really need to see them to be empowered by those stories can't won't see them, 
and can't see them because of the price tag and they're not being then it doesn't matter but there is sort of like a fan fiction thing happening where she like a character like her might produce a play like this now might produce the cradle will rock on broadway with all these stars but only people of a certain class can see them and it's not gonna have power yes. you know what i mean like it yes. that's what i saw it loses the power without the right audience right your but your question poses a question the question that i think ultimately has to be answered if we're going to possibly make more of this labor resurgence, then labor unions are going to have to get back into the role of sponsoring theater. I mean, there's so much that, mm. look, right now I'm exceedingly pleased by the fact that the UAW, the Teamsters, that they've won strikes, that despite our reservations, Rivka, that actors and writers have won their strikes. Yeah. But to me, the, the if that makes people's lives better, great. But if it's but it's not going to change America unless these unions take hold of some kind of vision for America. Okay, when you think about writers and 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 actors, they've got. I mean, they're the ones who can help do that. But it's, it's going to have to be the, the industrial unions, the service unions, and all mm -hmm. these other unions are going to have to get into the. Sorry, I know I'm going a bit off from this play, but that's what I was me. me that's what I was talking about earlier on. It has to be those kinds of folks. And I just wish they'd pay attention to the fucking history that, that, that <laughs> is there to tell them that needs that needs to happen. No, I'm serious. And off off camera I, I and agree off with you. audio sometime, I will tell you exactly the struggle that I'm trying my damnedest to pursue on this. Harvey, I completely agree with you. There's It requires, for, for a real movement, There requ it requires counter-programming. You know, it requires... Some sort of agitprop, something or some sort of political re-education, lyrics, art, art. Yes. yes, but on all fronts, it needs art, but it also yeah. needs you know news publications and own journalists. It's 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 media yeah. from right. from top to sure. bottom, and it's like this amazing dynamic that we see played out over and over again, where the capitalist class gets to have all of the media on its side, and then as soon as like someone with like a more leftist, communist, <laughs> socialist idea comes in. Everyone's like, well, no, 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 no. You're not allowed to say those things publicly because that's anti-American. That's too radical. Right. That's whatever. But you're right. Like, how are these ideas supposed to get out if we're not allowed to talk about them? If, if like, in, in situations like this, being censored by the people who have power. I do want to jump in and just, this was on my mind as I was watching this film because there has been some action and there's definitely a large conversation because theater is not in a good place at all about how there can be some sort of government funding. I know that people talk all the time about we need one of these New Deal type programs again, yeah. some sort of federal theater project to be revived. And last September, I don't know where it's at right now, but last September, the STAGE Act um, is a bill that was proposed that would provide $500 million in grant assistance annually to nonprofit regional theaters for five years, or roughly 20% of the eligible organization's collective budgets. And that would be following the Save Our Stages Act, which provided $16 billion to live performance arts venues when they were shut out during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I, and I remember, I mean, I was granted one of these. There was, there was an influx of money suddenly right after the pandemic, and it was so even on a small level, like you could see the impact of just all of these artists around New York City were given grants of five, $10,000 to just suddenly all this new right. work was being made. 
and you couldn't charge for it. So there was that piece also of like there wasn't a ticket price. It was just about getting grants, sharing work. And I mean, it was so impactful on so many levels of just there's so much competition when there's only one mic, but suddenly you're being given mics all around to all different kinds of artists. It's like, I don't really care if your play's bad or good. Like you have a mic, use it and maybe I'll come, maybe I won't, you know? So that was really impactful. And the bill is part of this professional nonprofit theater coalition, which is a group of artists and managing directors from over 140 theaters across the 50 states. And it was created by the former Oregon Shakespeare Festival artistic director, Nataki Garrett. And so, yeah, these things are happening. But I think you're totally right, Harvey, is like the history is there. And hopefully, I mean, I think a lot of particularly in the theater, I think a lot of theater makers look to the Federal Theater Project as something that was incredible. And similarly, there, there by the way, the, it was called Federal One. There was the Theater Project, the Arts Project, the Writers Project, and mm. the Music Project. And mm. last year as well, well, at least during the, sorry, not last year, during the initial 2020, 2021 dollars that were flowing to, you know, in light of the yeah. pandemic, there was a plan to also recreate the Writers Project. These projects were phenomenal. They, we didn't even talk about all the actors and and directors who came out of that. Right. They range from like Burt Lancaster to Studs Terkel. I mean, incredible figures oh. that, yeah. that came out of it. One thing I wanted to mention, which I love that this film did, because it didn't have to include it, but it, it depicted how American capitalists collaborated with fascists. Mm. And, yes. Which I, yeah. which I thought was just like a great little... Because, like, there's a version of this where he doesn't include that stuff. So, basically, we're following all these different groups of characters. One group are, you know, the, the, the rich American capitalists made up of Nelson Rockefeller, Gray Mathers, and Hearst. And uh, Susan Sarandon's character is working, you know, either with or adjacent to Mussolini. But she's basically brokering steel deals. Like, you know, Gray Mathers says, right. like, we're going to... We're going to provide all of the steel for for, for Italy, yeah. for your trucks. Yeah. And I think they mentioned how Hearst had been running these like glowing profiles of Mussolini in his papers. Mm. And this is in the year following. This is in the year following Mussolini's invasion and conquest of Ethiopia. And when we're introduced to them, you know, they're at like the Ritz flippantly discussing, oh, these labor riots and these <laughs> steel strikes and... Oh, there's there's black people doing Shakespeare now. Can you even imagine? And he didn't need to go that hard on them, but he did. And I always love. He's just like, look at these guys are just these are just rich racist assholes. And in to... that vein, remember he comes to pick up the countess's wife from the theater to go to the party, whatever it is, and all the actors and audience from you know, the closed version, the closed Cradle Rock are marching up to the other uh, theater, the Venice Theater. Mm -hmm. And he sees them marching and he goes, oh, my God, it's the revolution. <laughs> yes. That's true. Yes. He <laughs> says, it's the revolution. So right. <laughs> that, but you see, and, and what's good about that is th th that's the big fear. OK, that's yeah. the big fear. The revolution. That was really yeah. good. Also, Hearst, I just have to call back to, is a prominent character in Newsies. I, oh, yes. I, 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 that was one of the things I bit my tongue before we got off onto that. <laughs> right. That's right. So we have that overlap, which is interesting because, again, another Disney film. And Disney is certainly not a socialist <laughs> endeavor. <laughs> and, so it's and, just anything it's fascinating. But, right. Yeah. Really, absolutely. really is. I mean, it's kind of. I mean, maybe they produced this so they could say, "Look, we produce this leftist stuff too." 
Well, if we're going to get into conspiracy theories, like why I wonder why it didn't do so well. Like we had our we had our theories about why Newsies maybe wasn't marketed so well and didn't do so well. Like maybe there's something here about buying these stories and then putting money into them and making sure that they I, I actually have theories about seen. that. I have oh, really? some of that off the wall theories. Well, one is Okay, so the original play was The Cradle, Cradle Will Rock. The movie is mm-hmm. Cradle Will Rock, okay? Mm-hmm. There were films along the way titled something like Rocking the Cradle, something like that, with Rebecca de Mornay. This is before your times, perhaps. So, you know, maybe people say, well, I think I saw that film before, you know, Cradle Will Rock. I don't know. The second possibility is, so let's suppose you don't really know much. You don't, you don't know much history, and somebody, a friend of yours went to see, and they can't, and you always... Hey, what did you think of the film? And they say, God, I couldn't, I have no idea what was going on. There were so many references that I just didn't get. And it's possible word of mouth deterred people from going. That's very Um, possible, yeah. Yeah. Maybe. And the third one is, I wonder what kind of distribution it got outside of New York. I don't know. New York, LA, Chicago. I don't know how they wrote, I don't know how they handled it. Again, Disney distributed it. So, I mean, I, I have to imagine it had a wide release. And I have to just imagine the marketing team got a hold of got a hold of the cut and was like, I don't know how to sell this. This is it's a it's a period piece about theater, but it's also about communism and social. And it's also about like government overreach. It's so sprawling yeah. that it's like a tough sell in a. I'm single... so grateful to Tim Robbins for doing it because oh, this was absolutely. his shot. You know, they this was like again, Falling Dead Man Walking. They're like, whatever you want, baby. Yeah. His writing in this book, this is the, that book that he produced with for the for the film. To him, this was like the truly a labor of love for him. It was that kind of thing, and his introduction and afterwards in this about staging and so on. You really get that feeling. And now to go towards that that closing moment, they had no idea how they could pull off that closing scene where the where it's now moved to the Venice Theater. But but he said that, you know, they talked to the audience and said, look, this is the closing, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And they're all, they're extras. Okay, these are, these are, they're not people off the street necessarily, but they are, unless they were people off the street who made a few bucks as extras. You, you could tell me what the union rules are on that. But that, that closing has got so much energy, so mm. much energy. And he actually talks about that experience in a way that he said, he, he doubts he could ever reproduce the exhilaration he felt as he felt during that scene when it was performed. I mean, Tim Robbins, a true lover of theater, has is part of his own the I feel like the Actors Gang theater yeah, ensemble. Yeah, which John Cusack was a part of too. By the way, I've performed at that theater in Los Angeles. Oh yeah, me too. Oh, I didn't know it was actually. Yeah. It's still there as a theater. I didn't know it's that. still there as a theater. Yeah, I think his okay. company might still be active too. I don't. Mm-hmm. Th- I don't know how active he is within it, but yeah. Well, he was the artistic director for a long time. And you can feel, I mean, to me, that was what was so moving about this piece. I just was like, I love being an actor. There's a moment where that character talk who's talking to Olive, he's like the head union guy and the actor. And he's, what's his name? John Ad- Adair. By the way, he, he he's done sales movies, I believe, or things like that. Mm-hmm. There was a TV series that I think he was in that John Sales produced. He's a, he's a damn oh, good okay. actor. By he was a great actor. And he says to her, I mean, he kind of turns out to be a dick in like yes. his character. But in that moment where she's sort of one of the troop, you know, and he's just like, you're, you're never going to be lonely now. You're part of this family. And I think that's really true. Like a true ensemble acting troupe 
There's so much family. There's so much soul. There's so much joy. And this movie is a great movie about theater. He really nails what the energy backstage feels like. And I know we're talking about Robbins right now. I was really blown away by his direction because he's doing so much. He has so many actors moving in a single frame or in a single take. Everyone's doing their own blocking. They're crossing. You know, it's like someone someone walks into frame to deliver a line of dialogue and the camera has to turn. There's so much movement and choreography and tight cues. And that and it's like throughout the whole movie, he's doing this a lot. And it's like, that is no small feat to execute that type of elaborate camera work with that many people. Yeah. And it really is no it just dead like, man walking. It's no dead man walking. You know, the relationship between Houseman, that's the, the, the producer, and yes. Wells, Houseman, the yeah. director, is apparently as comical as it may have come ac comes across, was actually real, I think. They had that kind of relationship between them, this love-hate kind and of relationship. And then quickly broke up. And John Houseman's pretty famous for then going on to create Juilliard, the acting school of yeah, Juilliard. Right, that's right. And for oh, anyone who's that. not familiar with all that... He's also the star law professor in The Paper Chase. Which he won an Oscar for. And Orson Welles, I just think is interesting, wrote apparently his own version of a screenplay for it. The Cradle. Yeah. Oh, you did? Did. did you I read it? I bought it. I haven't read it because apparently it's there and it, it's never going to be produced. But he did, in fact. And I also ordered, and it was supposed to arrive last week and it has yet to arrive, a copy of Hallie Flanagan's it's auto, her, autobi her autobiography of her time directing the Federal Theater Project. Wow. That oh, I, would cool. be, I would love to read. Well, when it comes, I won't return it for coming late. I'll have a look at it. And I, I actually may well give it to you. Oh, I would. that would be amazing. I mean, I would love that but because I think that's a biopic. We, I don't believe we've gotten a real, real solid bio. I mean, I could have watched Cherry Jones do this forever. I love that character. I loved her She has a face that, that you cannot say no to. Cherry Jones. She when how how those right wing shites <laughs> could actually say no to her in the House Un American Activities Committee. She's got a face as like it's just like literally the sun lights up out of her face. And it's a brilliant casting choice for those that are, like Cherry Jones yeah. is I, I think at this point theater no, royalty. Yeah, theater royalty. So we cast her in this big role as basically like the steward of Ameri of the Federal Theater Project. I thought it's just yes, like it's it's like right. brilliant meta casting, but at the same time also Cherry Jones is unbelievable in this role. Yeah. She just imbues Hallie Flanagan with just like so much moxie, you know? That's one of the best uses I've heard <laughs> of meta ever. Meta and oh. Moxie. Meta and Moxie in one Thank you. discourse, in fact. Who would have thought? <laughs> I do want to talk about Orson Welles briefly. It's just such an interesting character. Historically, the, the performance and the choices in this movie are very, are off the walls. Interesting. Very interesting. At, th at this point in history, I believe Welles is supposed to be 21 years old. Angus McFadden, who plays him in the movie, is not that not young. Quite. Not quite. <laughs> if, you, if you're looking at the spectrum of selling out to capitalists on one side and like being like a pure, unadulterated artist on the other side, he's kind of right in the middle where he's like, I'm not going to compromise my vision. I'm going to do whatever I want. But also, like, I know who feeds me. There's like that great scene at the at dinner where he's like, well, you know, we're going to take the money. We have to take the money. You know, we're whores. Of course we're whores. You know, we're going <laughs> to... But we're going to do whatever we want, but we, you're not going to do everything that we want. Can I, by the way, we didn't really talk about Bill Murray's character or 
Joan Cusack's character. Mm. The Bill Murray character, for everyone who has yet to see this, he, he plays a ventriloquist. He's had a vaudeville. He's a vaudeville veteran. And in the Federal Theater Project, they had the vaudeville activities. And his job was to teach two young men. Uh, they, wanted, they had an act that involved what seemed to be ventriloquism. And it pissed him off that he wasn't appreciated for being an artist. They, they felt it was like beneath him to be just a teacher, which was unfortunate, by the way. But it's interesting that Joan Cusack, they have to be dealt with together. Joan Cusack is like, she's in the, the FTP as a, what would you call her, a... A clerk, a clerk, sort in of the federal theater project. Yeah, she's like help helping with paperwork and and get and putting people to work. She works at like the front desk, and she's yeah. she's keeping notes and organized. She she wants to go to the dyes committee to talk about how communists have taken over the federal theater project, mm-hmm. and she does. A, she's she's marvelous at that. She really can. So good. I'm just really marvelous, and then she organizes a little group of them and the ventriloquist Bill Murray comes to that. That's his name, Crickshank or something like Crickshaw. that? Tommy Crickshaw. Yeah, Crick, right. <laughs> he comes and of course he, he wants to bed her, which is one of the reasons he's there. But to jump ahead, in, he eventually goes out on stage at the Vaudeville Theater with his puppet. And th- this is a moment where he's obviously reached his limit with all of this politics around him and the ill treatment he feels he's receiving. And he's also been drinking too much. And he, he he's incapable of suppressing himself. So he speaks his deepest consciousness through, in quotes, the dummy. And mm-hmm. the dummy at that point is, is, is the red. Mm-hmm. He's the communist. And he's challenging Bill Murray's character, his you know the guy who's giving him the voice, and I thought that actually was physically performed beautifully. However, they oh, did it, amazing, he did very, yeah. And what's interesting is, for a brief moment, I thought that the, the dummy was revealing the ventriloquist's original politics. Yes. Did you think that? I I thought so. Right, like what's because ha- as if the dummy said, well, "What's happened to you?" Yeah, I thought right? that was the and point. And he called him I comrade. Mean, yeah. And he's, he and he says, should we go back to the old act at one point, he says, right before they go on. So, yeah, that was right before. He yeah. Does that. Oh, yeah. yeah. I right. thought that's I thought that was one of the best scenes in the film, because that, that yeah. was one of the most nuanced. I'd say I don't it doesn't bother me, but a lot of this was because the, it is like very historical, very educational. I think the, there was a deep intention to get the history across because it's important. But a lot of the scenes, because there's so many of them, I think are pretty on the nose. And this one, I thought, had a lot of complexity because of that, you know? He walks off the stage, leaves the dummy upright, and then the dummy falls. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the two young men who were being, one of whom is Jack Black, who's being educated by Bill Murray's character, they pick him up and eventually they put him in a coffin and they stage a funeral procession for the Federal Theater Project, mm-hmm. which, by the way, that's both true and untrue. So, number one, they had dates on up. Federal Theater Project, 1934 to 1937. That's mm-hmm. not true. It's 1935 oh. to 1939, okay? Mm-hmm. But there was one of the Federal Theater Project's plays, Pinocchio. And when that came to a close, they used Pinocchio in a coffin and staged that kind mm. of march. I'd like to tell Tim that I really admire not just his manipulation of the past, but that he even knew these things. 
I mean, he obviously read Hallie Flanagan's autobiography that I want to read. So clearly did his research. I'm glad you told that story, Harvey, because I read that in my research. Oh, when <laughs> when the federal theater, yeah, when the federal theater project was finally closed during a production of Pinocchio, they did this, yeah, this fake yeah, funeral processional. Right. I also, I, I think the Bill Murray character is so interesting because it also represents. To, to me, at least, like, the death of old forms of art, and in this came, yeah. case, forms of theater, and specifically vaudeville. You know, this is as vaudeville is waning and not becoming as popular of a, of a theater form. And it's sort of like these new political tendencies getting intermixed with his feelings of, like, obsolescence. Like, I'm no longer wanted. I'm no longer needed. Um, mm-hmm. You know, what I, what I do is no longer appreciated. And there's all these new young people coming in. And he's sort of like, it's, it feels like a conflation. Sure, I'm sure a lot of the younger theater makers at that time had more leftist views, socialist views, you know, collectivist views. So you, you have this old, stodgy, vaudeville ventriloquist. What he says at one point, vaudeville will, be, vaudeville will be around longer than you and your communists are. Commies aren't funny. Commies aren't yeah, funny. Commies aren't funny. Commies aren't, reds aren't funny. Reds aren't reds funny. Reds aren't funny. Not only that, he's adamant about that. Hallie Flanagan says to him, like, oh, we thought this would help. Like, we thought you would want the legacy to continue. We're putting you in a position to teach yeah. vaudeville and to and let it extend. And I think it just, the, the arrogance of, and his ego and the lack of desire it made me think a lot about, like, I don't know, I'm thinking about, like, the Dave Chappelle's and the, the comedians of that generation who were so, had something at one point, and they're just getting in their own fucking way, and we're just watching them just, like, yes. literally, I feel like Dave Chappelle is in his stage, is in that final scene with the, there's something so grotesque and, like, eerie about watching continue to do this, like, the things that were, like, funny in the 90s like why can't you all keep laughing now or like keeps punching down instead Um, of trying to actually work harder to like if your jokes are not funny they're not funny and jokes are sometimes contextual on like write better jokes be you know instead of having to keep punching down and it just there's something about that moment of bill murray with that ventriloquist speaking that inner monologue that just a sadness there that just made me think about yes. so many of those I, comics on yeah. stage right now. And then it leads to the brilliant final shot, which is this funeral procession for this dummy in the 30s. And then it pans over mm-hmm. to modern Times Square of 1999, oh, yeah. Love it. Showing, Love you, it. showing you basically how the death of American theater or certain forms of theater or certain ways that theater Mm. is produced ends up giving way to this like highly commercialized, flashy, only in it for the money and profit version of, you know, modern American of Times Square, which is just like we all know what Times Square looks like. It's a fucking nightmare. And that is and that but, but that is it's still the place where. Broadway and New York theater is centralized and it's it's like what is it saying to us that like the place that we associate this this grand art is also the place we associate that Disney owns most of that yeah that's true now so too. weird there's some elite capture weirdness there yeah this is back before yeah, sorry I, I sound like I'm this truly old man talking to little kids but way back <laughs> there was a, do you know the show Gypsy of course yeah that's one absolutely. of my faves okay, okay. Do you remember that was really about burlesque replacing vaudeville? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And by the way, as a sad note, my university chancellor and administration is looking to cut the theater major. Oh, God. I'm oh, sorry my God. That. That's they're, awful. They're not going to cut the theater faculty. They'll just be part of a, a larger humanities program. But 
there would not be a theater major for students. And that's another part and theme of this movie. When there's public disinvestment from the arts, not only the people who work in the arts, but just so many generations of young people are completely robbed of like some sort of creative education or or or, or just like yeah. getting access to creative expression. And I don't have anything in front of me now, but I've read so many statistics in my life that's like, oh, it's proven scientifically that if children have access to music, to art, to theater, mm -hmm. to blah, 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 to whatever, then they end up developing into more... Better brains. <laughs> yeah, better brains. They, yeah, better brains. <laughs> yeah. Better right. brains. And how vital this is. <laughs> and better hearts. More than brains, better hearts. I think it's the empathy machine, which we're really... See it's really terrifying to see that go away because that's really i mean who needs ai when you have humans void of empathy like we don't need to fear ai you know should we move on to our awards okay well let, let me then in which case let me start off by asking you so rivka and frank who had the best politics oh this see this is true i mean i think i have to i think i'm gonna give best politics to oh see it's hard it's between hallie and but my heart is saying just to give it to mark blitzstein Oh. oh, that's yeah. that's a, yes. I think Mark Blitzing. I mean, Hallie's obvious. I l love her. Best best politics, amazing. But in terms of the heart of this movie and the mess and the message in this movie and the like and the political development, maybe I'm gonna give it to Mark because it, it the power of the of the arts and the storytelling. It's Hallie, but I'm gonna give it to Mark. And for the record, everyone, those are two real historical characters who've now received this award. But Frank, what do you think? <laughs> I, I I agree with Rivka. I think it's between the two of them. I think it's, I guess it's like what you value more because like Mark created this story, this, you know, very, it's very pro-labor, radical, anti-capitalist story that, that then gets to live on. But on the other hand, you have Hallie who was able to, go in front of the dyes commission and kind of make all these congressmen look like yeah. buttheads, you know, through her testimony. And, you know, I, I don't know how much they dramatized that for the film. I, I don't know. I don't have like the transcript from the dyes commissions, but she's able to articulate a populist politics almost like completely objectively where she's not coming down one way or the other, but it's clear that she has more left-leaning mm -hmm. politics. So I like, so for the ability to go in front of a bunch of Congress people and make them look stupid, I would maybe go with Hallie. It's too bad we couldn't talk about just how stupid they are. But by the way, I, I do love your choices. And I'm going to be completely honest with you. I didn't write either one of those down as a possible oh, politics. Okay. Who was yours? I, you I, but please note that I made it a point of expressing my true affection for Hallie Flanagan <laughs> and Cherry Jones on the one hand. And also Mark Blitzstein. I also would say I'm, I was a co-founder of the Wisconsin Labor History Society which is still very active, and it's mostly a labor organization, not an, acad not an academic thing. And we actually, we actually underwrote the staging of a labor play based on Blitzstein's music. Oh, wow. This goes oh. back about, geez, it might be 25 years, something like that. Hell again. yeah. Okay, so having said that, first I'm going to offer you my silly version of the best politics. Okay. okay. The dummy. <laughs> is you Sure. Okay. I love that. The dummy has great politics. The one admitted communist in the whole thing? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And by now I'm going to give you the, the, my honest answer that I have actually written down so I wouldn't, I'd have evidence. And Frank, you sort of introduced my answer. The character John Turturro plays, Aldo Silvano. Uh, oh, yeah. He play, he's, he's a union member. 
He also plays the union leader in the play that's being moved about and almost crushed. But it's important. He's an Italian-American whose family has all emigrated basically from Italy. But he goes to a birthday party, so the whole family is gathered, and he's bring, his family's there too. And it's, is that his brother or his cousin? His brother. Has got the kids singing a fascist song. At the party, and he's and he's utterly he's outraged, and he's willing even to to leave the apartment that they live in that his parents are helping him afford and move to a what would you call it, a transient hotel, and yeah. I mean it's to me he his politics are the best, and he's the guy who at the end of course is you know they're waiting how many of them will actually stand up and do their part from the the mm. audience you know from the the seats, and he is the one who drives home the whole play at that moment to me. So yeah. that's the, to me the best politics. But I don't disagree with either of you, and it is a it was a really tough choice. Well, I think again, this is why this film had to, even though it may have suffered a little from having so much stuffed in, the politics of the film would have suffered if it just focused on one storyline yeah, because it's seeing right. them all together that paints the picture of a true movement, that you see the role that everybody plays. It couldn't just be Hallie Flanagan. It couldn't just be the playwright. It couldn't just be the union worker. This Like, it's everybody's stories moving together all at once is how a revolution is built. And you have to be able to tell all those stories all together. Right. And I'm just going to say, I just got to say that scene of uh, John Turturro's Italian family asking him why he doesn't have more jobs, that was really, <laughs> that was... That was traumatic for me to watch that. <laughs> I have I did, so many you know minutes. What, Frank? Why don't you just go? Why don't you just go get yeah. apply for a job? I don't understand. Just go apply for the job. Why don't you just go get a better one if you don't have a good job <laughs> he's right lazy. now? He's lazy. He's lazy. Yeah, he's lazy. <laughs> and then we have to be like, that's not how auditions work. That's not how auditions work. Like, please leave me alone. I have to tell you, Frank. Although I didn't think of it for that reason, in that scene, I was thinking of you, because you know I often try to cast you guys when I'm mm-hmm. watching these things. Mm-hmm. And I saw you in that, in his role, by the way. So, Oh, yeah. thanks, Harvey. Okay, so now we turn to the darker side of the uh, equation, the worst politics. I'll go first on this one because we didn't really talk about her character a ton, but uh, Joan Cusack is Hazel Huffman, who works for the Federal Theater Project but is trying to sabotage the Federal Theater Project because she says that it's filled with communists and anti-American, all of this, you know, all, all of the all of the bullshit. And she actually goes in front of the Dyes Commission and testifies that this these are un-American communists that have infiltrated the theater project and the government is paying for this and how terrible it is. Because she's the one that in the, other than like, you know, the rich capitalists or the, the congressman, that's actually like, she's a regular person putting her politics into action for the worst reasons. And... Even in the movie, they like it's pretty like after she testifies, there's a great scene where she comes back to the office and every one of her coworkers turns her turns their back on her. That's what you get for not standing in solidarity. Yeah, I I I think that's I think that's a great choice. I mean, I really do, which should also indicate that she was not my first choice. But that, that is a that was a real, no no. You can't you can't get any worse politics than that as one of the workers who was herself mm-hmm. dependent on it. And by the way. By all accounts that I've read, because I've not seen the actual transcripts, the, the statements given to the Dyes Committee were not unlike just that kind of thing, okay? They were mm. not looking for real evidence. They were looking for just ammunition to, to spew to the press, I think. so. Yeah, I mean, she certainly 
was atrocious and most hateable on the surface, I think, just because it it was so annoying. But I would say Mathers. I think, like, the steel-owning capitalist who makes deals with Mussolini is pretty yeah. <laughs> yeah. shitty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And on top of it, he treats his wife like shit, too. I made a list, and that was top of my list. Gray okay. Mathers, the capitalist, the steel company. Gray but I just Mathers. also want to throw in William Randolph Hearst was a utter shite. Um, <laughs> Martin dies. Martin dies. <laughs> yeah. Dies as far as, you know, I'm glad he, you know, he's gone. And, but I, but Susan Sarandon's character was utterly despicable because she, yeah. Yeah. you know, utterly, utterly despicable. And, um, and that one moment where she, where we're supposed to believe that she actually has a heart when she, they're out of the room and she's looking at the artworks that she's selling to mm. Mathers. And she says, oh, she's sort of, you know, it's a lament that she's having mm-hmm. to sell these works to these capitalists who don't appreciate, truly appreciate them. But at that moment, you know, all she's doing is trying to sort of put a little Band-Aid on the crap that she, the, the, the cuts that she's made in her soul. So, uh, mm. yeah. And, Ro- and Rockefeller, not great. And Rockefeller, oh, yeah, great. awful. But what's what's funny there is, Cusack plays him in a kind of. You look at you can see the look in Cusack's eye that he's. It's hard to hate Rockefeller. It's like like he really wanted to be the nice guy at the outset, and he ends up. So sorry, I'm not defending Cusack. It's Rockefeller's not as vile at that moment as these characters, to my mind, and break and destroying the art. Well, yeah, yeah. I think one of my favorite moments when Rivera was taking Rockefeller through the mural. And he's like, "Well, what's what's this?" And he's like, "What do you think it is?" He's like, oh, "Like the like elites at at a party." And he's like, "Yes, you got it." He's like, "Yes, I got it." He's like, "And it's that above their heads?" He's like, "Oh, that's a syphilis cell." And he's like, "So are you saying that all like specific elites have syphilis?" And he's like, "Well, you don't have syphilis, do you?" And he's like, "Oh no, no, no." Yeah, you're right. I take and back what I said. And it's this one syphilis <laughs> cell that's hangs like in the intercuts between the play happening and the mural being destroyed. Yeah, that's right. It Mm -hmm. stays there maniacally, which I loved. There's also the smart thing that Robbins does with the Nelson Rockefeller character and the the Contessa Lagrange character, which is demonstrating how these rich people who are interested in the arts usually have the worst taste in the arts. It's like these are the people who actually control right. what where the money goes and who it gets invested in. Right. It's like it's like a running joke that uh, Vanessa Redgrave is patron is is the patron of Paul Giamatti, who I don't even think has like maybe two lines in English in this movie, who plays like an Italian opera singer and composer who is atrocious. We see like one scene of him performing and he's terrible, but like. Vanessa Redgrave is pouring a lot of money into this guy. He's her dummy. He's her dummy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. But it's an interesting right, thought that, right, like, you right. know, th- these people get to make the choices of who gets the money, who gets the whose art is invested in. And it's like, oh, we're just trusting your taste. You don't know. You have no fucking idea what you're talking about. This is a really good movie we yeah. saw. <laughs> this is a very good movie. All right, and our okay. final award. Do you want to call it out, Harvey? I I don't have the exact words that you guys use, which is so artful. I just would say. Who deserves a further story, or who deserves a follow-up film, or whose whose life would you really like to see on screen? Does that that was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Best say. supporting character slash spinoff. There's so many. Oh, there's so many. This, but to me, this was the hardest. 
because yeah. any number of the characters are actually real people. Well, I think the fact that I don't know of any other Hallie Flanagan biopics, like that seems like a must. Oh, yeah. you'd like to, I, I agree. By the way, if that's the choice, if, if we're going to go with a biopic, I, I'm with you. She was the head of the theater department at Vassar. She met Hopkins, who's the guy, played by Balaban, Bob Balaban, is that his name? Mm -hmm. Yeah, He's yeah, the yeah. guy sitting next to her in the here. And Hopkins is like Roosevelt's, one of his most important people all the way through his administration. Hmm. So anyhow, um, they were friends at Grinnell College as undergraduates. Mm -hmm. So when he gets this opportunity to wow. do the, the, the arts projects, because the argument was, Artists need to eat too. That was the mm. point that that was the argument that led FDR to say absolutely and sign off on the whole package of stuff. So I agree with you. The biopic, she deserves a biopic or at least an HBO show, say something like that. I, I can tell you that thinking in comedic terms, I, I would like to see Contessa LaGrange. Yeah. I, I thought her character was just. So great. It's sort of irresistible. And when I was and by the way, so when I was very much younger, when she played Isadora, Isadora Duncan in the in the film, did you ever see that? Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Oh God, yeah, that's that was fun. But I, I would love um, to. I didn't know that was a movie. I got a crush on her after that. And uh so I have this thing, Vanessa Redgrave as the count as the Contessa would be kind of fun to I'd like because I would like to know more. Maybe she actually had yeah, left yeah. politics. Maybe mm. who knows what? Yeah, but would love to see a movie where she like actually leaves her husband and joins. Yeah, you know, totally. Joins the, yeah. the the theater troupe or something. Who did you think deserved Frank a, a spinoff? I was just really taken by the dynamic between John Houseman and Orson Welles, and in just in reading a little bit more about their relationship as it seems like John Hausman was like Orson Welles's producer for the early part of his career and was responsible for like getting him a lot. Like I think John Hausman like helped facilitate Orson Welles getting hired by the federal theater project. Yeah. So I would like to see it. Yeah. Like I was much more interested in John Hausman. I was like, who is this guy who is like the dude behind Orson Welles? Like this famously, Megaloma this famous megalomaniac who is this like quiet little guy behind him i was really interested in that so i would i would watch a, a movie about john hausman's life and career find someone from juilliard they can give you the <laughs> a really good movie. it would be fun <laughs> it would be fun if they had the courage to do it it may be on hbo kind of thing if they would do a thing on the Macbeth mm. that wells and hausman was it they were together on that oh right? yes yes that would have, or at least Wells is significant. Also, one last thing to, on a serious vein, a spinoff. I'd like to see Turturro's labor figure and what, mm. in a, what mm -hmm. kind of f fictional story they could come up with that. Did he, did he get drafted into World War II? Did he come back? And, you know, I, I'd be curious because labor's my, always the thing I've got in my head. So, yeah. I would, and I would opt also if they were to do this again as a mini series. I would want to see it. It is slightly Disney-fied, this version. I would want to see the version where this is a miniseries drawn out. And I would actually want to see that, like, I don't want to just hear about the rats, you know? I want to see them. Because they talk a lot about it, but I I didn't see the the circumstances of the Great Depression as much as I would like to see it to understand some of the literal circumstances it didn't yeah. it felt a little broadway which again i didn't mind sure. 
but like I think there's a version with more time and not, you know, where you, know you how he really tried get to, grittier. You know how he tried to do that. If you think about that opening scene. The opening scene and, is fantastic. And there's that, it's up on the screen, it's the backside of the, of the, of the theater screen and yeah. they're showing the newsreels, fascism and you know, yeah. war in mm-hmm. Ethiopia and then FDR's New Deal. And she, there she is sleeping backstage. Yeah, that was the closest okay? for sure. And then she gets up and look what she goes to to get out. And she ends up in the in the gutter in the alley. And then she goes out and she's leaning over the water hydrant, you know, the fire hydrant yeah. to, to wash her face. Um, that was at least a... That was it was close, but even she was a little Oliver for me. You know what I mean? She was a little still like <laughs> musical theater dirty. I'm talking like I wonder mm-hmm. what this story would look like if you looked at them and you're like, they smell. Well, that overlaps with our film The Grapes of Wrath, by the way. Yes. That's true. All right. Well, Harvey, uh, this was, again, such a pleasure. As always, thank you for your time and for all of the knowledge that you get to impart onto us. Before we run, you know, the last thing we like to do is ask our guest what they do to live their values in their everyday lives. And I know you've answered this question a couple times, um, but do you have anything, anything new well, to add? Let me just say that I, 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 I'm spending so much time trying to get people, it's moving, but not at the pace I'd like, get people to actually start embracing the idea that FDR proposed in 44 of an economic bill of rights that survived through the 50s, through the 60s, Good political people like A. Philip Randolph, Martin Luther King Jr., Bernie Sanders and others, and and Marianne Williamson, which is the reason I've been her advisor, embraced. And I'm trying now to do my damnedest to get, I want to, I would, I wouldn't kill, I don't want to talk like that, but I would do any number of tricks to get Sean Fain at the UAW to read the pieces and the stuff, the videos we've created around that, and to have the UAW lead the charge in labor, promoting the Economic Bill of Rights. Since back in 1944, when FDR proposed it, it was labor that picked it up and promoted it heavily. Mm. And now we don't have a president who will do it. Why doesn't labor take the lead in promoting it? So I've been working hard on doing that stuff. That's amazing. You're amazing. Well, thanks. So you guys are amazing. Absolutely amazing. Let me make that clear. Don't cut out what I just said. I will not cut. I would never da- I would never dare to cut out someone complimenting us. I was going to say is there any resource um that we can point people to if they want to learn more about the 21st Century Economic Bill of Rights? Two things. First, I recommend if they go on YouTube and type in Harvey K Gravel Institute. Mm-hmm. Okay? I did with the we'll Gravel Institute it. a video a video of FDR's Economic Bill of Rights speech, it, and then I talk about its significance and what it would mean for us today if we could harness that. Otherwise, there's an article, a piece I wrote. How to basically, I think the only way to save democracy right now, and I don't mean to sound as apocalyptic as it just sounded, or maybe I do mean to sound it, is if we can get the Economic Bill of Rights embraced by labor and let labor push the Democrats or at least the best of the Democrats to embrace it. Otherwise, honestly, I don't know. There will be no turnaround in this ridiculous and tragic and piece of shit circumstances we find ourselves in. Mm. Sorry, but let's end on a high note. The high <laughs> note is if anyone has films that they want to recommend to me that I should propose, I'm on Twitter at Harvey JK. And we will make sure to link to, to both that video 
and your written piece uh, in the episode description. Harvey, it's always a pleasure seeing you. Thank you so much again. We love you. We love you the most. Thank you all so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And if you want to support the show and get access to our premium episodes, you can go to mvcpod.com to find all of that information. Next week is Valentine's Day. So we'll be watching the romantic comedy about the wedding industrial complex, 27 Dresses. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.